As we come now before God's word, if you'd like to read with me, uh, we'll be in the book of Exodus, no surprise here. Uh, We're in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. This is the next section of scripture for us. Exodus chapter 7. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we've just sung a prayer to you that you would illumine our hearts. Would you turn the lights on for us so that we can see what is true? We know that the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So Lord, help us now to see these things, to hear them, to even to feel them deep in our hearts so that we would more closely follow you and love you more deeply. Guide us now by your present spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is the book of Exodus in chapter 7. I want to take up this morning these first first set of verses, these first 13 verses. So Exodus chapter 7 will begin here in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. Now, about a week ago, 
um, a set of storms came through. Maybe you got them also in your area. One of them in particular was uh, especially powerful and came with hail, uh, which was exciting for our girls and mysterious that there would be ice uh, pellets all over the ground. Uh, but before even a drop of the rain from this storm fell, we were sitting as a family out on the porch, just kind of enjoying the cool day. Uh, but we knew that the storm was coming for a few reasons. One, I love a good weather app. I love to check the weather radar, and I could see the red line of the storm coming in. You know, but even without all the technologies and things like that, even most of us can still sense when there's a storm coming. You know, we can, we can often see it. You know, when there's dark clouds in the distance that look like you know the cotton balls that have been soaked in oil. Uh, you can you can also often smell it. That something that I don't know how to put a finger on, but something in the air changes that I can smell. And, and my favorite sense about this is that you can often hear it coming. And, and that's not just the sound of the thunder, that just before a big storm comes, often there's the beginning of it, which is just a whisper. You know, that slight rustle that begins in the leaves. And then after a little bit, that rustle begins to become whooshes and the gusts of wind. We can actually hear the wind itself, and, and that then begins to, to, to trigger the creaks and the clatters. You know, the hanging plants begin to bang gently against the side of the porch, or the, the rain gutter begins to squeak just a little as it rubs against the side of the house. And all of those things, you can, you can hear the storm coming. The wind is part of the storm, but it's also a sign of what's coming after it. This text is like sitting on the porch and hearing it come. In this moment, we hear the whisper of the leaves begin to rustle. We know that the Lord himself is invisible. We cannot look upon him because he's holy, but here we start to see the dark shadow of his hand on the very edge of Egypt. We'll soon hear, hear, hear the gusts of wind and the, the creak and the clatter in each house as we sit on the cusp here of what's often called the ten plagues of Egypt. Now, this is a fitting term to call these things, Plagues. The scripture uses that word. The word plague captures not only the events of what is about to happen, but also the tone of those events. There are other words for, for all of what's about to happen. In fact, in the text we've used here, there's various words to describe it. We hear these big events described as signs and wonders and miracles. But the tone of those sound a little different, sound a little more upbeat. Signs, wonders, miracles. Sounds like something maybe you'd see in a, in a circus tent. Yeah, you pay a quarter to see the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Um, but plague captures not only the miraculousness of it, but the darkness of the clouds. There's actually another term that's used here in this text that will help us understand what's about to come even better. But we'll talk about that in a moment. We are on the cusp here 
because this event before Pharaoh, where the staff is turned into snakes, is called itself a wonder. So in that sense, it's like the plagues to come, but it's also different than the ten that come after it. This wonder of the staff turning into the snake is limited. It's limited in its audience, so it's only really witnessed by Pharaoh and a few of his court members. It's also limited in scope, so it's likely that no one else in Egypt even was aware that this was happening at this moment. This event here, the, the snakes, is not included in the ten plagues. We could call it then, in a sense, a, a pre-plague. It's the wind ahead of the storm where we can begin to hear the leaves rustle. And by itself, it is still ominous. We see here that by the command and power of the Lord God, Moses and Aaron throw down this wooden staff before Pharaoh, and that staff, when it hits the ground, begins to move and coil and becomes a living snake. And that is startling, but that is not the most ominous part of this scene. It's what comes after that. So if I were Pharaoh, my first instinct, if I would see this, you know, a staff down, uh, comes in snake, after I get over the shock of it, my first instinct would be, get the snake out of here, right? Fetch the royal shovel, and somebody start to hack at it, or whatever your, your approach is. But that's not what we see him do here. He does fetch something, but something else. He, instead, he says, fetch the sorcerers, fetch the magicians of Egypt. And it's likely that there was a bit of time here that the magicians were told what had just occurred here in front of Pharaoh, and that would give them, the magicians, time to prepare a response. And they decide they're going to bring their own snakes. In my research on this text, um, I learned a couple new words here. I have to read them because they're big. Ophidian catalepsy. Is that new to you too? It was new to me. Ophidian catalepsy, which is a fancy way of saying snake paralysis. So in some of my readings, some say about this particular text um, that it was possible that these magicians were just really good assessors of nature, that they knew that you could put uh, pressure at a particular point in the neck of a cobra, and it would cause that snake to become rigid and paralyzed. And so some say that the magicians uh, may have brought in these snakes that were half paralyzed, that kind of looked like a staff. And then when he threw them, when they threw them down, they were jolted back awake. And, and so they looked like these staffs had turned into snakes. And that's how all of this happened. To me, that seems kind of silly. And it seems like a stretch about what the text actually says about this. This is not talking about Ophidian catalepsy or paralysis of snakes. The magicians here are not entertainers. They are not just hocus-pocus workers, not illusionists that do a little sleight-of-hand magic. These magicians are religious figures. They are the occult priests of Egypt. 
And we're told that they do what they do here, quote, by the secret arts. We don't know exactly what that is, but it's not just a set of tricks. This is Voldemort-style dark art stuff. That's different than the way Aaron and Moses accomplished the same act. But still, the text seems to tell us that these magicians brought in real staves that become real snakes by real magic. And there's some deep, dark mystery here. And I hope we'll be able to look more at this next week when we examine how the magicians relate to the Nile turning into blood. So we'll have to save that for another time. For now, we need to notice that their goal is not just to bring in a pretty trick. They're not just trying to impress the Pharaoh. Their goal is to undercut the miracle of Moses and the power of God. It's, it's basically the kindergarten thing of, you know, anything your God can do, our gods can do better. And it works. It seems to succeed that they copy this, at least for just a moment. So imagine the scene of what's going on here with me. I know I'm going to take a little bit of poetic license here. You can look at what the text says, but we'll try to put some skin on what's happening. So Moses, uh, Aaron technically, but the staff has been thrown on the ground, and, and Moses' staff is now a snake. It's now sitting in the middle of the room. And I would imagine they tried to get rid of it. Doesn't say that, but I would imagine they didn't just leave it there to do whatever it wants. Uh, I imagine then that they tried to get rid of it, but no one was able to. Somehow they couldn't get close. You know, it likely reared up or, you know, stuck its hood out, gave it that nice spooky hiss. So now, in light of the snake in the middle of the floor, in walks this line of sorcerers. They're not dressed in, you know, the stereotypical, you know, capes with the pointy hat and the stars. But they probably had some sort of, you know, official ceremonial robes, probably hanging amulets, special magic objects around their neck. They may have even been wearing animal masks. At any rate, we know at least each of them, every one of them is holding a staff in his hand. They probably did something here, maybe cast a potion or mumbled some sort of incantation that we couldn't quite decipher. But then eventually, either one at a time or I think probably all at once, they throw their staves down on the ground. And as soon as they do, then the floor is now alive with writhing, hissing snakes. you imagine that scene? Now, as ominous as that is, what is truly ominous then is the gust of wind that then comes. Moses' snake then begins to eat the others. The snake eating snakes swallows each one whole, one at a time, a little salt, until his snake is the only one left. Here comes the storm blowing in. Could they hear it? Can you hear it? Can you hear this? The plagues 
are on their way. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we could call these coming plagues signs or wonders or miracles, but there's a phrase in this text that helps us understand what is coming even better. It's in verse uh, 4, if you want to read with me. Verse 4, let me read it. The Lord says, Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, here it is, by great acts of judgment. By great acts of judgment. This snake here is the gust before the storm of the ten great judgments of Yahweh the Lord. So now in the rest of our time, we want to ask three questions about this. The questions are these. What is judgment? Who is judged here? And why are they judged? This is what's coming. What is judgment? Who is judged here? And why are they judged? Let's do the first. What is judgment? We often think about judgment as always a bad thing. We can get really defensive about it. You know, don't, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Um, but it's not always bad. The definition of judgment that I'll use here is this. A judgment is a fitting result that comes from a right assessment. A fitting result that comes from a right assessment. So that fitting result can be good or bad depending on what the assessment is. And there are lots of examples in, in Scripture of this, not just the Lord judging, but of people judging. There's one in particular that I'll highlight that comes later in the book of Exodus. Um, after the people of Israel have been let go by Pharaoh, finally, and they, they leave slavery in Egypt and they come out on their own, then Moses begins to set up a system of judgment for the people, how they're going to interact with one another as a society. So listen what he does. This is in Exodus chapter 18. Uh, where do I want to pick up? Verse um, 20. This is the advice Moses has given. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. And moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, Moses, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. In other words here, judges are mainly deciders. That's what judging is. So that's why the criteria given here for these men who will be judges, it's not that they're muscly. The criteria is not that they're, you know, these powerful figures who are going to be the ones to drop the hammer. They're, the criteria for them is that they're to fear God, that they're to be trustworthy, 
that they'll hate bribes. This is what's going to make them able to make good and right assessments, at least to do the best they can by God's grace, to decide well. Together, with those assessments, then come the fitting results that go with them. So judges may make determinations on property, either that property is to be taken or to be restored. They may make decisions on money, that money is to be fined or repaid. They may make decisions on lives, even, that a person is to be freed or even put to death. But the point here is that the judgment may be good or bad. The act of judgment is the result of the assessment of judgment. And we know humans are imperfect at this. It's clear, right? You can look anywhere and see judges that have failed in various places. We do the best we can to give right judgments, but we know that God always judges rightly, always. So it's important for us to see here in Exodus that these plagues, these great judgments of God, are not just God being mean. It is not just God tramping around like an ogre, thrilled to squash everybody. He's not just dropping the hammer because he's just an angry God. What we see here is a right and fitting result of what is happening These dark thunderclouds of the plagues to come are the fitting result of years, generations even, of the evil that has now come due. So the Lord then swallows up these snakes because it is the fitting result from a right assessment. It is the right thing to do. That's the first. That's what judgment is. Now let's look at the second question, which is, who is judged? Who is judged? We might assume from looking at this text that the ones judged are Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and that's true to an extent. God says here, I will stretch out my hand against Egypt. But that's not the main answer. They're not the main ones being judged here. Later, in the tenth and final plague, the Lord is most specific about who all these judgments are upon. It's in uh, chapter 12, verse 12, just a single verse. Let me read it. The Lord says this in the tenth plague, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The ones being judged here are the gods of Egypt. That means here that the main battle is not between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not even between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It's between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. Now, let me bring some clarity to this as well as I can. I'm going to try, at least. We know that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
is the only eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful God. He is the only creator. There is no one before him. He is the maker of everyone and everything without exception. That's why he says in Isaiah, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That is true. And by this, the Lord means that he is in a totally different category than anyone else. So in this sense, there is only one God and yet. There are other creatures, ones who are made by God, who are under God's lordship, who the scripture itself sometimes calls gods. And these are not just imaginary creatures, not just hypothetical creatures. They are not even just inanimate idols although sometimes that's the case. In some places, there are real living beings who are called gods, ones who are likely even the source of turning staffs into snakes. That's why we call the Lord God, Yahweh, we call him the God of gods, That's why in chapter 15 of Exodus, when the people sing after they come out of Egypt, who is like you, Lord, among all the gods? There are many gods with a little g, different than God Yahweh, Yahweh, but still real. And some of these creatures, these little g gods, have set themselves against God Almighty, which is the case here in Egypt. So then these ten great judgments are poured out upon the gods of Egypt. What makes it tricky for us is that what we see with our eyes, of course, is the effect of those great judgments upon the human people. We don't see how it's impacting these unseen gods. We see how it's affecting all the families, and this gets very complex. We know that the Egyptians felt all ten of the plagues, although a few of them heeded the warnings that the Lord gave. They feared the Lord and were spared some of the judgments. And on the flip side, Israel was protected from many of the plagues, and yet they still experience the effect of some of them. If I can give a general summary of who it is that is judged, I would say this. The judgments fall on the gods of Egypt and on all who follow those gods. In other words, judgment falls upon everyone human or superhuman, who refuses to repent and turn to the Lord. That's our second question, third question. And we'll ride this wave into the end. Our third question is, why are they judged Why are they judged? The Lord is wise, and there are certainly many reasons why he does anything that he does. 
We've already addressed that one of the reasons why he judges is because that judgment is deserved. It is part of a right assessment here. And he mentions also in this text that part of his judgment is so that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. We'll get to unpack that more at a later date. But there's at least one more reason that's given here in the text that I want to address, and it's made clearer previously in the previous chapter. Let me find it. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 6. Listen for the reason why judgment happens here. 6, verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Did you catch it? The reason he says here why he brings great judgment is because the judgments are the means of redemption. The judgments themselves are the way in which he will deliver the people. So we could say it like this, full salvation must come through full judgment. Full salvation must come through full judgment Unless the snakes are fully swallowed up, they can return to bite you again and again and again. So what's true of the Egyptians then, a few thousand years ago, is now also still true. That judgment is still a means of salvation. And that is the reason why we need Jesus, at least in two ways. We need Jesus on the cross, and we need Jesus on his horse. We need Jesus on the cross because on the cross, Jesus took our judgment. And we know if we're honest of ourselves, the right assessment of us is that we are sinners and rebels before God. Have you ever gotten just disgusted at your own sin? Just tired of the same things coming up again and again. I'm too old for this. I should have gotten over this by now. You just get tired of the things that come out of my mouth, come out of my hands, come out of my heart. So I know then that the, the fitting result of that ought to be punishment, ought to be the wrath of God, and the debt, that very wrath, cannot just be canceled and written off but it can be paid. The debt can be paid. That's what happens on the cross for a Christian, that the debt of our sin is paid in full. That for all Christians, those who who repent and believe, Jesus then takes on the full entire judgment of sin, the full judgment so that he would accomplish full salvation for us, that not a drop of God's wrath is left for us to drink, which is, for a Christian, just a relief, because we don't need to fear then the final judgment of God. The Christian is secure that we've been brought full salvation through full judgment. That has already happened. 
But there's something else we need from Jesus. That's true, unchangeable. We need Jesus on the cross. We also still long and need to see Jesus on his horse. There's a sense in which this whole account in Exodus, not just the text we read this morning, but but the whole thing, all the plagues, all the great judgments of Egypt, all of it is just the leaves of a rustle on a tree. It's just a whisper of an even greater storm to come. It's still on the horizon. We can see the oily cotton balls. Can smell the rain of it, but it will come the day of the Lord, a day of great judgment, and when the wind blows in fullest force. And on that day, we see in the very last pages of Scripture, we see a rider, Jesus, riding on a white horse. There's a crown on his head and flames of fire in his eyes, and his name is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war on his enemies. In that day, he makes war on the beast, the great ancient serpent. He makes war on all the rebel gods, and he makes war on all who have followed them until every one of them is cast down and swallowed up like snakes of magicians. And while that may sound ominous, and to some degree it is, these are not dark clouds that need to make us tremble. Because we see in the great day of the Lord that when full judgment comes, that is when full and final salvation arrives. When the people of God watch this great and final act of judgment, instead of trembling, there is a great chorus of praise. Let me end here with these words, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this... I heard what seemed to be the great voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants, and once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Would you pray with me?
Lord in some ways. These things are too great for us to fathom. But Lord, we know from watching the news and even from watching our own lives that there are great and desperate injustices in need of your great justice. Lord, we praise you that you are true and faithful, that your judgments are just, even the hard ones. Lord, help us to run to you, that we would find in you the taker of our judgment so that we would be fully saved. Help us to see you and to trust you as our God and to give you the praise that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.